For the next several months, we'll be studying the book of Acts together, which means if your Bible is old, it might wear out in that portion. Uh, You might start losing a few pages, but uh, we look forward to this study in the coming months. I'm just curious, I'd like to, to, for you to be willing to wave a hand at me. How many of you have never sung the song, Tis So Sweet, to Trust in Jesus? Anyone? All right, that was new to my kids, and um, felt like I dropped the ball somewhere in not having them know that song. So uh, I'm glad uh, you know that song, you sang it well. Uh, a great story, if you want to pursue that this afternoon, you can see the, the hymn story behind that text. The book of Acts is a book that's going to recount for us uh, some detailed history. We're going to go back a couple of thousand years into the lives of real people that God used in his redemptive plan in that specific period of time. It's a book that will include some exciting stories for young and old alike, Um, some miraculous events, some dungeons being broken open, things like that, some shipwrecks. There's some good stories in the book of Acts. But I think we also have to bear in mind that the book of Acts, though a history lesson with some exciting stories, is also part of God's word that is designed to be instructive for us today. We believe that the Word of God is inspired, that it was breathed out by God in perfection. We also believe that God in His kindness has preserved His Word for us, even in the translations, ours English and in translations around the world, so that people can know what He expects of them. And so we want to approach the book of Acts with a spirit of learning. We want to come as students of this book. We may know its stories well. Perhaps we understand its place in the story of the Bible and what God was doing and beginning his church. But let's come with a spirit of learning. And if we do, I think this book will serve us well by calling us to be the church. The church powerful, the church believing, and the church triumphant. You see, like the fledgling church, that unfolds in the pages of the book of Acts, we too have a mission, a calling. We're to make the gospel known by our words and by our lives, our works, wherever God puts us. And so if he plants us here in our corner of the world, then we shine as lights in the crooked and perverse generation here. And if he moves us on from this church, from this city, from this country, then we go there, and with our words and with our works, we make him known. Today, we begin with just the first five verses. Let's look at them again. You heard them already, but of all the verses in Acts chapter 1, we usually hurry on to verse 8, and I want us to see the foundation here in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, 
appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I want to consider a few summary thoughts under the heading, The Story Continues. The Story Continues. Acts begins with these words in the first book. In the first book. This is helping us understand that Acts is actually a sequel. There was a book that came first that told some of the story, and now is a book coming that is telling the rest of the story. The the first book was the gospel account of Luke. So you could turn back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you have the gospels, we call them. They're good news accounts by these different writers. And Luke gave us his account. And now, he says, he's giving more of the story. In the first book. Well, let me read the beginning of the first book. You'll hear some things that sound familiar. Luke writes in his gospel account, Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. We hear that familiar name, Theophilus, with a title most excellent. This is all we have to go on in understanding Theophilus. Likely, someone in a position of authority, warranting the, the title most excellent Theophilus, and likely a believer. The things he had been taught, Luke was going to unfold in a full narrative description in this account. And Luke's careful, he says. He's he's been observing this for some time, he says. He's dealt with the eyewitnesses. He's been detailing all of the story. That's the gospel account of Luke, and it is detailed. And it gives us a wonderful story. Now, Luke says of that first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Who's the I? Well, it's Luke. We see that when we look at Luke's gospel and see its destination, Theophilus. But we also come to realize as the story continues that this book of Acts that unfolds and we think of Paul and his missionary journeys and his preaching at the Areopagus and all these other events that center our attention on Paul, we have to realize that there were a lot of people that traveled with Paul, and Luke is one of them. Luke traveled with Paul. Colossians 4, as Paul writes, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. 
Luke was with Paul and sends greetings to the church at Colossae. In Philemon, Paul writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. We're wrong to think of Paul on this missionary journey as this brave soul defying circumstances everywhere he went all by himself. The reality is he traveled with an entourage of fellow servants who bore many of the burdens that he bore and made his ministry all the more possible. As Paul writes to Timothy in the second letter, he says this, Luke alone is with me. Even when Paul could send Timothy to to cover some preaching or send some of his others, he got to a point where it was just him and Luke on these travels on behalf of the churches. And there's an interesting portion in the middle of Acts where the account references, we did this, or this happened to us, as at that part of the journey, at least, Luke was there with Paul, suffering all the things he suffered, enjoying all the things he enjoyed, seeing the church built. It'll be good for us to remember as we study Acts that we're getting the account not just of historical events, but a little bit of an autobiography as Luke tells his story. But then, as he says in the first book, reminding us of a sequel now, I have dealt, we're talking about Luke, the author of Luke and Acts, which makes him the writer of the largest portion of the New Testament. When you combine those two books, Luke actually gives us more data than Paul does in his letters to the church. So for a man not mentioned much in the spotlight, actually avoiding the spotlight in his gospel and in Acts, uh, God greatly used him. Not, Not a preacher by vocation. He's the physician that traveled with Luke or with Paul. And yet God used his vocation in a unique way in the book of Acts in the building of the church. Luke says that his first book dealt with all that Jesus began to do. All that Jesus began to teach. The implication is that Acts is a continuing record of what Jesus is doing and teaching. He's talking still in the book of Acts about a work of Jesus the Christ. Now, You may be looking at the first page of your Bible and it says the Acts of the Apostles. Well, we don't need to take that as an inspired title. Uh, That's the title we gave to this portion of Luke's writing, this second scroll from Luke. And it's not wrong to say it's the Acts of the Apostles. As as we think just on on an earthly kind of temporal plane, Yes, clearly God was using the apostles to do these things. It was the acts of the apostles. But if we're not careful, we fall into the trap of missing Luke's point in his first emphasis of a verb, that he was giving us something that Jesus began. That's the first book. Now he's giving us something in the second book. But he never states it. It's just the implication. If the first book began to show us what Jesus 
taught and did, the second book continues to unfold what Jesus was beginning to do and teach. Acts demonstrates the work of the risen and ruling Christ. That's the book of Acts. It's about Jesus who rose from the dead, was on earth for 40 days, then ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, and implements his kingdom by his spirit in his church through the word. But it's ultimately the work of Jesus. It's the work he began, the work he's continuing. Remember, he said, I will build my church. He just didn't elaborate there that some of that would be recorded in the book of Luke with Jesus present on earth, and some of it would be recorded in the book of Acts where Jesus isn't present bodily, but his spirit is in the lives of his people. So to be clear, and it's there on your notes, the apostles, the church, and the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts all glorify the work of Jesus Christ. It's the acts of Jesus through the apostles. It's the acts of Jesus by his spirit. It's the acts of Jesus in his church. But to Luke's point in Acts 1 and verse 1, my first book was what Jesus began to do. My second book is what he continues to do. And the interesting part of Acts is that it will kind of end without much of an ending. Just another historical detail that leaves us feeling like there's more to be said. Some have argued that there, there, there was going to be a third installment from Luke by the way he uses the language of first book. And they try to argue that that implies more than just another, but multiple. But the reality is when we understand that it's the work of Jesus Christ, not just the Acts of the Apostles, then there's a reason Acts ends abruptly and that's because the church just keeps going on and Jesus continues his work of building his church even today. So there's a church association called Acts 29. Well, there is no chapter 29 in the book of Acts, but they are building on this theme that Acts is the work of Jesus building his church. This record is back then, but the record is ongoing. Jesus is building his church today. You sit here and worship the risen Christ because Jesus promised to build his church. And he called you to be a part of it. The work is continuing. So whatever we learn in the book of Acts about the mission of the church, its power, its, its plan, its agenda, its people, is still true for us today. So let's be learners as we come to this book that continues to tell us about what Jesus is doing. Acts will show us how Jesus commissioned his followers to take the gospel to the known world. Now that sounds like a rather lofty, significant, and challenging mission. To take this good news that they had seen with their own eyes and take it to the known world. And we would be right to ask the question, how is this great commission going to be accomplished with a band of disciples who struggled with even understanding 
what Jesus said to them at times, who struggled with fear of the religious and the Roman culture of their day, who struggled with believing who Jesus was despite him telling them clearly. They'd hear him speak, they'd see his miracles, then they'd turn to each other and say, who is this man who can calm the wind and the waves? Think of it. They were naively surprised by Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, despite multiple predictions by Jesus, even of various details, like he would be beaten and spit upon. One of the twelve would abandon all hope after three years of training and betray Jesus. The loyal eleven that were left all ran away when Jesus faced trouble in the garden. Peter blatantly denies any following of Jesus. And after the crucifixion, these disciples hid in the upper room, fearful and disillusioned. What is the hope that they are going to take good news to the known world? What changed between fear and disillusionment in the upper room and the story that unfolds in the book of Acts. And I think the answer in part is found in the details of our text, a small phrase in verse 3. During 40 days. During 40 days, something happened to move these men from fear and disillusionment and calling it quits, Peter saying... I'm going back to fishing. This didn't work. So let's go back to a livelihood that at least makes life worth living. What changed? 40 days of continuing education. 40 days of a block course, a refresher. 40 days on foundations. In essence, Jesus saying, get the foundation right and you can build a church. Forty days. And in that span of 40 days, truth rooted finally in these disciples. In that span of 40 days, faith kind of solidified. Something made sense. Confidence grew. Hope blossomed. And suddenly, this, this mission of taking good news doesn't seem so out of reach. What did Jesus emphasize in these 40 days, in these five verses of the beginning of Acts, spanning 40 days, Jesus said things that changed these men. He moved these men from hunkering down in an upper room, wondering if they had just wasted the last three years of their lives, to heralding the gospel to the nations and believing that for this cause, life would never be wasted. But what changed? Have I wasted my life to 
It's never a waste to lose my life for the kingdom. What happened in what the Bible says during 40 days that so changed these people? Well, the answer shapes our outline there. Three realities that enable the continuing gospel story. If we can make sense of verses 1 to 5, then we'll understand the rest of the 28 chapters. What did Jesus emphasize that enabled the continuing gospel story? Number one, from verses 1 to 5, we see that Jesus emphasized the hope of the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection. By that, I mean two things. The hope of seeing Jesus resurrected, the hope of what that represents, and the hope that we too will then be resurrected because that's the natural following of Jesus' resurrection. What does the text say in verse 3? He, speaking of Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. We think back to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, despairing on Resurrection Sunday. They left town too early to hear the news. And they, they're bemoaning the fact that the one they followed for these three years ended up getting crucified and buried in a tomb like everyone else. Jesus walks with them, sits down and breaks bread with them, and then reveals himself to them. Jesus appears in the upper room to most of the disciples. Then another time he appears to the disciples in the upper room and Thomas is there. And there's that well-known encounter of, of his faith solidifying in the presence of the risen and still scarred Christ. There's the breakfast on the shore at the end of John's gospel as the disciples have gone back to fishing and Jesus beckons them to the shore to a meal with a primary focus on restoring Peter after his betrayal. Multiple appearances, the scriptures say, to more than 500 witnesses. Many proofs indeed. Proofs of what? Proofs that Jesus is alive. You see, the book of Acts is built on the truth that Jesus is alive. It matters to the book of Acts. And Luke is careful here to, to give us these details that seem introductory, but they're, they're actually foundational because the extreme of Acts, what's going to come out of this book and what's called the church happens because he presented himself alive. Jesus is alive, and that matters. Paul would write to the church at Corinth in chapter 15, saying that if Jesus has not risen from the dead, we are of all people most miserable. We're still trapped in our sin, and yet we've bought into a religious system that cripples and paralyzes us from all the pleasures of the world. What a miserable existence if this is all in vain. And he quickly adds, but it's not, for Christ is alive. 
And the text goes on to argue that the resurrection validates all that Jesus said. The resurrection validates who Jesus is. The resurrection validates what Jesus will do for us if we repent of sin and believe in him. His promises are true. We are forgiven of sin. How can I be sure of that? Well, go back to the resurrection for the validation of all that Jesus said, all that Jesus is, all that he promised. So we are forgiven of our sin. We will not face condemnation. We are kept in his love, so he will work all things together for our good. He is coming again. He will make all things right and new. That's why we sang, there we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast forevermore when Christ is ours. There, the joy of heaven. Jesus is alive. And this resurrection hope that was revealed first to these disciples and to 500 witnesses becomes the foundation of the church. And so in the middle of Acts, we will eventually in our study come to the text where it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Why are you guys doing this? Who are you? What is this all about? In their minds, it goes back to Jesus is alive. The resurrection matters. But our text reveals another emphasis during these 40 days. It's there also in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The victory of the kingdom. We should be sure of this meaning of kingdom because it's all through the Gospels, especially Matthew. But it will be foundational to the book of Acts. What do we mean when we speak of God's kingdom? Because after all, so many times the Jews and even Jesus' own disciples thought Jesus was talking about overthrowing the Roman Empire and establishing a Jewish kingdom with a physical descendant of David on the throne ruling an earthly empire. Lord willing, we'll see even next week. The first real information that Luke records in his account is there in verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now that we know you've got this power to rise from the dead, surely it's now. They still don't understand. So what is the kingdom? And the description, the definition is just not complicated when you read the Gospels. When Jesus spoke of the kingdom, he spoke of the rule of God. Now that could be over nations and empires. That could be in a physical kingdom as it was through Saul and David and Solomon and all the kings of Israel. And it will be a kingdom that triumphs over all earthly kingdoms in the sense of visible reign. But what about now? What about in Luke's writing of the church in Acts? 
and the church in the Dark Ages, and the church in the Reformation, and the church in the 21st century? Where do we see kingdom if we can't point to a province or a nation where Jesus actually rules? Well, we come back to our definition. What is the fullest definition of the kingdom of God and it's God's rule? Has God ever not ruled his creation? Of course not. We just don't always see it in the way that we want it to be visibly triumphant. But when we think of the rule of God, then we understand what Jesus taught us to pray. When he told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. May the rule of God be evident in the lives of those who follow you. May that rule eventually, yes, be seen even by the unbelievers when every knee bows to proclaim Jesus is Lord. But until that day, the kingdom is still in effect. It is still ruling. It is still advancing. And every heart that submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ expands the kingdom of God. Jesus' earthly ministry was introduced in the language of kingdom. So if Luke's first account tells us what Jesus began to do, it'd be good to know the beginning of Jesus doing and teaching. And Mark 1 records it for us. After John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus introduced himself and his ministry, his teaching and his doing as kingdom work. What's more, Jesus declared that the kingdom, his church, would be victorious. In Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They'll put up their opposition, but they won't be able to stop the onslaught of good news, the good news that Jesus saves. This has been true in our lifetime. Iron curtains kept a whole lot out of the Far East in Europe, but it could not keep out the kingdom. China has labored long and hard with every device and military instrument and technological advance to keep out the kingdom, but they're not succeeding. The gospel advances. And so in the book of Acts, we'll be reminded of God's spreading kingdom. When Philip preached in chapter 8, we read, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, they were baptized, both men and women. Speaking of Paul, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Oh, of course, at other times it would say that he spoke about the Christ or the gospel. But we need to see Christ and the gospel and the kingdom of God as all this one glorious truth. That's the work of Jesus. That's the good news. That is his advancing kingdom. That's his budding and blossoming, ever-expanding church. Paul would say in Acts chapter 20, his testimony 
I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom. Maybe that can be your mission this week, to go about everything you do, and you'll go about doing a lot of things. But do that in such a way that in the the way you live and the times you have to speak, you're proclaiming the rule, the benevolent yet all-powerful rule of Jesus. The New Testament church is built on the promise of kingdom victory. Jesus needed these men who were going to become foundation stones. Remember, upon the, the apostles and prophets, Christ builds his church. They are going to be foundational stones to this church that is built. And he needed them to know these certain truths before he even pulls them together and says, I'm leaving now, be my witnesses. First came during 40 days. With that emphasis on resurrection, with an emphasis on kingdom, and now third, Jesus' emphasis on the presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse four, while staying with them. That's an interesting word. Could be translated eating with them which we'll see in the book of Acts, there's going to be much said about times when people gathered around food. You can read it in the Gospels too. I have a book in my library called Meals with Jesus. And it goes through all the accounts in the Gospels where Jesus carried out ministry over food. Uh, It just reminds us that this is a great benefit of getting with people. You get to stuff good food down, right? Right? and enjoy all the flavors and stuff that God's given us to enjoy. It's a setting of hospitality. It's a setting of intimacy. It's a setting of belonging. And it tells us that's what Jesus did with those men. He he lived life with them, most notably around food. So while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. And he, and he pointed them back to a time when John the Baptist said, and Jesus echoed it later in the Gospels, that there was a baptism of water that John did, but Jesus would baptize with the Spirit eventually. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means that this encounter with the Holy Spirit during this 40 days This emphasis on the Holy Spirit comes in the language of promise. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, as the New Testament church, we should realize it's tied to promise. It's tied to God's faithfulness. It's tied to God's person. God sent his son, the second person of the Trinity. He dwelt among us bodily. The the disciples could say we have handled him the Gospels tell us. But that bodily presence of God departed, ascended into the clouds, as we'll see next week. But another presence of God took his place, the Holy Spirit presence. That's because God had promised to never leave us or forsake us. The promise was, I will send the Holy Spirit. The prophet Joel wasn't the first reference in the Old Testament to the Spirit. 
Perhaps next week I'll remember to find the reference in the Old Testament where God says, oh, would that my spirit dwelt with my people. The stubborn Israelites who could never seem to get it right needed to hear the promise in Jeremiah that one day God's law would be written on our hearts, that somehow from the inside out we would be doers of righteousness. Joel just jumps on that bandwagon and says, I'll celebrate with this idea. And he predicts that God's spirit would be poured out not just on a prophet, but on our sons and our daughters and on all God's people. We'll get to that in Acts chapter 2. John the Baptist spoke of the promise, that future baptism of the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus in John 14, 15, and 16 unfolds the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Luke records the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 24. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So there's where we find the the overlap, the kind of the link between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke is connecting us with this language of the Holy Spirit, showing us the story goes together. So Luke records the promise of the Spirit, Acts records the promise, and now we have our beginning place of understanding this Holy Spirit that is about to be poured out. It's part of God's promise. But we must not miss the language of Trinity because the word Trinity is not in our Bible anywhere. It's it's a word that we've stamped on the teaching of the Bible to help our minds understand God in three persons. So we have a word for that, this trinity. But see it as it unfolds in this early paragraph in Acts. The language of trinity, the son, Jesus, who's the instructor in this 40 days of emphasis. The son is telling his followers of the father's promise to send the Spirit. So we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God in three persons. Separate in their persons, but equal in divinity. Subordinate in their roles. Specifically here in the accomplishment of redemption and the building of the church. They serve in different roles in that great story of salvation, but they are still equal in essence and glory. Trinity is not an easy concept for our minds. We, we grasp at anything that might illustrate it, and there is nothing. There is nothing in all of creation that illustrates for us a three-in-one-ness of God. The church labored for hundreds of years in multiple councils with the brightest students of Scripture by the help of the Holy Spirit to define for us clear sentences or paragraphs that were consistent with Scripture and yet tried to explain to our human minds how God could be three persons and yet one in essence. We receive it by faith, though practically we see it unfold in ways that seem to work in our minds. We can hear Jesus the Son telling his disciples, the Father will send the Spirit 
when I go back to heaven. And that seems to work for our minds, and well, it should. But don't miss the language of Trinity. And then, of course, there's the language of baptism, which is always a language that makes us stop and think, what are we talking about when we hear about baptism? John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, first, John baptized. It was called a baptism of repentance. It identified, yes, but it identified someone as sinful, saying, I am sinful, I need righteousness that God will provide. So it was this anticipation, this yielding to Jesus who was coming. They identified with God's promise of being made righteous. So they went to John and were baptized. But then the Bible unfolds the baptism of those who believed. And in that baptism, we identify with the actual person of righteousness and salvation. We say, I identify with Jesus in his life, in his death, and his resurrection, so that his righteous life counts for me, his death on the cross counts for the payment of my sins, and his resurrection counts for my eternal life. I identify with Jesus, the baptism of believers. And now we have this baptism of the Holy Spirit, also about identification. But here we are sealed with immersed in, surrounded by the Holy Spirit. And we are identified as belonging to God and to his church. And so Paul would use this language of being baptized into the body, and then he unfolds what the body is, made up of all the different parts, all the different gifts, but it's one church, one body. So don't be confused by the baptism. They serve to to show us pictures of our heart's response to God's plan of salvation and for the building of his church in those who believe. This Holy Spirit will be seen all through the book of Acts, used dozens of times, because the Holy Spirit, like the language of kingdom and like the understanding of the resurrection, are foundational to the book of Acts. Let's close by defining the theme of this book, the theme of this continuing story, the theme of the book of Acts. In the 40-day period between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus emphasizes these three realities. It's what we see in verses 1 to 5. Before we get to, you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost part of the earth. Before we get there, they heard something that set them on a trajectory that allows for the continuing story of the book of Acts. Jesus emphasized the hope of the resurrection, the victory of the kingdom, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And these three realities would motivate and enable the advance of the kingdom. That's the theme of the book of Acts. I know it says Acts of the Apostles, We could say the acts of the Holy Spirit. We could say the acts of the church. But in essence, the biggest theme to hang over this book is the advance of the kingdom. You see, Acts begins with kingdom. In chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus was speaking about the kingdom of God. And what you might not remember, at least, is that the final verse in Acts speaks of the kingdom. When it tells us, 
of Paul that he welcomed all who came to him while he was imprisoned, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. The kingdom bookends the story of Acts. And we go from 11 disillusioned, fearful men to the last word of the book, announcing the kingdom and the name of Jesus with boldness. Something changed. And for all of our stories of wimping out when it comes to witnessing for Jesus Christ, maybe something will change if we too will encounter the risen Christ who said with conviction and promise, I will build my church. And who tells us, I will use you and I will give my Holy Spirit so that you can do this. These three realities are still the emphasis for any church that will advance the kingdom. The mission of the first century church to advance the kingdom. And brothers and sisters, the mission of the 21st century church is the same. To advance the kingdom, to proclaim and live the truth in Jesus' name. And so, Heavenly Father, ready us for this study with the same readiness that you gave to your disciples before you sent them out. Show us resurrection hope that springs eternal. Show us kingdom triumph that reminds us we are on the winning side, that the darkness will not win, that death will not have the final word. And remind us that we are sealed with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may we bring you glory as your church. May we do it with thankful hearts. And while building the church seems like a big idea, may we live it out one hour at a time this week, simply proclaiming the name of Jesus his lordship, his benevolent reign in our hearts. This we ask in that name, the only name given under heaven throughout all earth, the only name that saves. So we rest in it securely now and forever. Amen.